Hello, stranger. Do you like to read? Read? What's happening? Am I dead? I bet you like zombie books. I like food. Do you have food? You don't need food at dividedbyzerobooks.com. It's full of nutrient-rich science fiction. Ugh, I'm stuck in an ad, aren't I? Once I stop talking, reality will collapse until someone plays this ad again. This isn't the first time we've had this discussion, and it won't be the last. Hello, stranger. Do you like to read? Hey, everybody. This is Derwin, and today is a post-pandemic perspective. And it's my birthday weekend, which is kind of nice. I'm recording this in May of 22, and I'm sitting on the covered porch of the cabin that we got for the weekend, drinking coffee and watching the rain hit the pond in front of me. I have a fun new sleep apnea now, and there's a worldwide shortage of uh, CPAP machines, which is super duper fun. And so I'm on a list because it's my sleep apnea is so mild that my risk of like heart attacks or strokes is rock bottom. So I'll probably have a CPAP sometime in the next six months. And until then, I am going to try to work all the weight off and get in shape again. And maybe I can, maybe if I don't know, maybe if I drop 20, 30 pounds, maybe I can work out of sleep or, or not have sleep apnea anymore. Wouldn't that be a thing? And I realized something recently, too, that much like letting my physical ailments define me, I let my background define me. I let the socioeconomic class I came from define me. The, you know, sort of poor white conservative background define me, who I was. And, and my in-laws are sort of middle-class Catholics with, you know, good jobs and everything. And and fitting in with a group of people from a different economic class is interesting. It takes work. You have to kind of reevaluate yourself, right? Like, like you can't looking at myself as, like, the poor guy in the room, right, when I'm not anymore, you know, but in my head, I guess you're always there, but, like, I'm not poor anymore, not by a long shot, and it's hard to not see myself in relation to that, right, because money's, money's a weird thing, money will, money makes people act differently around each other, but I kind of think that while people with more money do act differently around people with less money, I think people with less money think about it more, right? Like they, it's on their mind more. And then like if you're broke and you hang around a bunch of people who aren't broke, you're going to be so self-conscious and you'll feel like a fish out of water and you'll feel like I don't belong here and they're looking down on me or whatever. And not that I feel this way around them, but like I've noticed it in others, 
you know, they've never been nothing but nice and kind to me and accepting and loving and Christian and wonderful. But, you know, I've known people from the same background that I came from, hanging around people like them at their socioeconomic level. And I've seen the weird conflict go on. I've seen the, you know, how the person from the lower background interacts with the person from the middle background and how, like, insecure and awkward it all really is. So, and there probably was a bit of that with me. I was probably doing that a little bit, if I'm being honest here. And a lot of it, too, was like, you know, like, oh, everyone's, you know, they all grew up in a... A big difference is... If you own a house or not, right? Like, you can tell what someone's background is. If you can say, hey, did your parents own the house you grew up in? You know, and and no one's better or worse. You can just kind of tell because everybody in my in-laws, they all owned the houses they grew up in. And, and we did not. We never owned a house. You know, I've got... I had 33 addresses up to the house I own now. Something like that. Give or take a few. You know, if you count like Iraq and stuff. Hey everybody, this is Derwin. And it's day two of my birthday weekend out in the cabin. I'm recording this in May of 2022. And our friends, Evan Kelly and his lovely wife, are at the other cabin. We're at one of these fun places where there's a tiny cabin off to the left and the main cabin off to the right. And they're staying in the main cabin. And me and my wife are off in the tiny cabin off to the left. We were so lucky to have them come up and spend the weekend with us and kind of enjoy nature. And I'm sitting on the front porch of the tiny cabin watching a little red robin look for worms in the dirt and just kind of enjoy the pond and enjoy the fact that the rain stopped, I guess. And enjoy the sense of all-encompassing gratitude that I have for my life. For how good my life is. How good everything turned out. It didn't have to turn out this good. It doesn't turn out good for everybody. Um, And that really sucks. And I've known guys that life really didn't work out for them. You know. After the war, after the army, whatever. And mine did. Oh man, mine did. And it's funny, um, the more your life works out, the <clears throat> the way you get used to things, you know. Like, you know, back when I had $11, and six of them were laundry quarters, and I was eating MREs I stole from the armory uh, in a mystery stew in a big pot on my stove in my apartment, where, thank God, I paid the rent 
three months in advance with my drill to, or my AT check, you know, if you'd handed me $40 or even $20, that would have changed my life. But, you know, if you hand me $20 now, $40 now, I'll just go buy a nice lunch. Like, you know, and I think that's, ideally that's the way it should be, right, as you get older. You know, you should progress through stages in life, right? And and another thing I've felt myself progressing through um, in what will be today's post-pandemic perspective I think is the difference between nationalism and patriotism. Because oftentimes people get the two conflated. Oftentimes people are selling nationalism under the guise of patriotism. And they sell it typically to the people in the lower socioeconomic classes. Because nationalism is a simple story. And when you're struggling, when you're in a bread line, when you're wondering if the food stamps are going to make it to the uh, 1st or the 15th or whatever, you don't have time to think about, you know, complicated versions of the world. You know, you're trying to make sure that when your kid hits the light switch, it turns on. So... You kind of buy a story that's comforting. You buy a story that's easy to digest, to to promulgate, to to teach your own children. It's a comforting story. There, there's a bit of religion, I think, in nationalism as well, where a lot of it's about belief, right? It's it, 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 there's an inherent correctness to your country. There's my country. You look at things through the lens of my country is always right. Or there is a presumed, there's an assumption of good faith in your country's actions, you know, because it's your country and then yours is the best country. And so you presume good faith at all times. And so someone has to disprove you of your good faith belief in your country, which is hard. Nationalism sets people up to where they have to be so eminently disproven in their belief that when their belief is shattered, it, it fundamentally changed. It happened to me. I used to be quite the nationalist myself. I used to look at things through a lens of, with, with the presumed good faith assumption that America is correct. If America did something, it has a good reason, Right. And I would say my nationalism has formed into a sense of patriotism where I love my nation dearly and I know the incredible things it's capable of. And I know that, like any nation, it's full of humans and humans uh, are inherently a fallen people and always fall short in the eyes of the Lord. So if you've got... an an imperfect state staffed by imperfect people, it's going to make imperfect actions. So you can't presume good faith at all times. You have to, 
you know, look at it with a critical eye. And the thing, too, the dangerous part about nationalism is that if somebody is deeply invested in their nationalistic identity and somebody says, hey, I love my country, too, but also there's some things happening that aren't cool or this might not be a good thing, then when you... You're attacking a belief, right? Like, like a nationalist believes, you know, and then and, and it, it, the good faith assumption that their country is correct is so inherently ingrained in them. It's a part of their own identity, right? And so, the challenge for patriots trying to talk to a nationalist is finding a way to break through that 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 consumed identitarian belief of nationalism to say hey I love my country too I think we're going wrong in a certain direction we should maybe course correct here you know or maybe the people that did this don't have our best interests at heart or whatever right this isn't like a political party thing. This is just, you know, politics in general. And and I don't know how to do that yet. I think, I think I'm just at a point where I diagnose the problem. Because my nationalism was entirely destroyed over the pandemic. I, you see things... For, you, you see groups and you see people for, you know, whenever there's a crisis and you see how everyone acts, you're like, oh, that's kind of who we all really are. So, and it took me a couple of years to process things where bad things can happen, but also good things can happen. America isn't one thing. There's 350 million people here. There's too many people here for it to be a one-dimensional answer, or even a two-dimensional answer. It's across 350 million dimensions. It's, and I think, as a patriot, it's up to me to influence my own very small circle, my own little sphere of influence to understand what patriotism is and then share that, right? You you should love your country, you should love your neighbors, you know, and you should do what's best for your community, right? Like, you should, you know, and, and understand that Doing what's best for your community does not take away what's doing best for you. It's not an either-or. It's a yes-and situation. Nationalism is either-or. I feel like patriotism might be yes-and. Yes, I love my country, and there's work to be done. And I think we'll end there for today. As I stare at the little baby squirrel chomping on a nut on this piece of wood in front of the porch on the cabin.
and there's a heron that flies in and swoops up fish out of the pond and takes it to the land about 15 meters to my right and eats the fish in front of me. Oh my God, I'm so lucky. (laughs) I'm such a lucky guy. Hey everybody, this is Derwin, and today is another post-pandemic perspective. It's about recognizing patterns in your own behavior, patterns in who you are as a person. I'm on a walk right now. There's a walking trail pretty close to my house, and there's a pub about two and a half miles north, and... I walk up there and have a quick pint and walk back. It's just about calorie neutral. So (laughs) feels like it's worth the effort for a five-mile walk. And I noticed a pattern in myself and my anxiety where I sort of gain energy from people. I gain equilibrium from being around people. You know, human interaction for me is a lot like food. And the last couple years, we've all been on kind of a lean diet of human interaction. Although there's more interaction now than there used to be by quite a bit. I just got back from my birthday weekend and it's a Monday, and I work from home today, and I knew this was coming, but it happened anyway, because I had such a great weekend full of friendship and fun and just love. It was wonderful. It was one of those birthdays you never forget, and then I came home, and kissed my wife goodbye at about 8.30 in the morning. And I was alone after that. I was doing my normal 9 to 5 day job. And this pattern that I've noticed in myself that reoccurs is where if I have a really fun weekend... (laughs) If I have a really great time, you know, like with annual trainings back when I was in the National Guard, if I had a really good annual training, uh, I loved it. It was like I was, it's like I was just loading up on food, right? And then I'd come back, and then to my sort of isolating day job, and then I would just kind of emotionally crash, if that makes sense, where I would. Just get anxious and get lonely and be like, oh my God, there's no one. I'm by myself and, you know, it's very much a whiplash thing. It's an up and then it's a down thing. It's, it's, I don't like it. I'm not a fan of isolation 
we'll say. And and I had it today where you just you go from being really happy to being kind of sad, and you're just anxious and you're looking for things to be upset about and something to control something to distract you from what's really on your mind which is you hate being alone you hate it <laughs> and and it helps when you recognize the patterns it helps when you know why things are happening it helps when you know what to do to mitigate it for me it's sometimes it's just as simple as texting my wife saying hey I could use someone to talk to right now also my brother I talk to him quite a bit that's really nice I think kind of think I have therapy to think for all that background knowledge you know because without therapy I wouldn't know any of it I I'm a big proponent of it especially for men because we're kind of told not to, if that makes sense. We're, for some reason, acknowledging emotions is seen as a sign of weakness amongst men in our culture. And, and it's not. It's, you know, getting mad at yourself for feeling sad about something or anxious or angry, or whatever, is kind of like if you got hit in the leg with a baseball, and you got mad at your leg, you got mad at the blood underneath your tissue for welling up and forming a bruise where the baseball hit. It's about the same, you know. And it's just an emotional response. That's all it really is. It's your body's way of telling you something. It's your body's way of doing something, right? For me, after I've had such a lovely weekend to go back to feeling isolated, the thing my body says, no, this is not good for you, sucks. So I don't know what the solution is yet, quite yet. It's, a, it's probably a hodgepodge of a number of things. I imagine... I am not alone in that. I'm imagining there's a lot of people going through similar things as I'm going through. And I think you can acknowledge emotional struggle. I think you can acknowledge the need for understanding your own mental health better without feeling like you're broken or you need to be fixed. You know, you don't need to be fixed. You need to understand what's wrong. And that makes all the difference. And that can save people's lives. And I still love the idea of sharing my experience that maybe I can encourage someone to better themselves. Because I hate so much of what we've turned ourselves into, this clickbaity culture war nonsense culture that hates each other for no fucking reason and I just refuse to participate in that total distance one mile total time 23 minutes and 33 seconds split pace 23 minutes 33 seconds per mile
And so, within the sound of my voice, you're worth being well. Hey everybody, this is Darwin, and today's Pandemic Perspective is going to talk about family estrangement and how strange it is to be estranged from your family and how I keep finding myself having the same conversations with people about every two weeks about how hard it is to be estranged from your family, how it's kind of a, a dull ache on the best of days in a throbbing nerve of anxiety and anger and regret on the worst and there's not really a fixing the problem because you know the only thing worse than not being with them is being with them miss the idea of family of your family this mythical family that you constructed in your head the the fantasy that you leaned on, you clung to for so many years. You miss it. You miss wrapping the fantasy around you like a blanket. The blanket that comforted you and kept you warm. So you didn't have to think about how cold reality was. But you know that if you contact them they might pretend they might play along for a little bit but you know it would just be the thing that you remembered all the reasons that you cut them out would just come back because you tried you tried to fix this you tried to make it better you tried to make it work they weren't interested the only thing worse than missing them is having them in your life and it's so fucking painful but every time they contact you that ache becomes the raw throbbing nerve that's infected even over a simple birthday card just brings it all back and you just wish they'd leave you alone and never contact you again. That's what estrangement from your family feels like. It's fucking terrible. Your heart achingly misses people that you don't want to talk to ever again. Total distance one mile. Total time 24 minutes and 5 seconds. Split pace 24 minutes 5 seconds per mile. Hey everybody, this is Derwin, and today I am walking again, trying to work off all that beer weight I gained over the winter of 21, and maybe if I do all of that, I could not have to have a CPAP machine. Wouldn't that be something? So, 
Today I'm going to talk about religion, which is one of those things, much like politics, is very lightly tread upon. I've been thinking about where I stand with religion lately, because I was kind of raised in that sort of like vaguely Southern Baptist area of Christianity, but also not a lot of that makes sense to me anymore. And that's the way it should be. You should reevaluate what you grew up with. You should reevaluate where you came from and what you believe. If you pick a story from when you're a, ch- a boy and you just stick with that story, well, I feel like you should do some more work there. Like you should maybe investigate the problem a little bit better. Always update the operating software, as it were. And for me, a lot of my beliefs were shaken during the pandemic. A lot of it was fractured. A lot of the things that I thought I could always count on fell apart. And I saw that at the micro with my own family. I saw that at the macro with the Christian conservatives where they were so offended to wear a mask (laughs) on the off chance that it might save someone right like like maybe it does maybe you wear a mask save somebody isn't that christ-like you know like isn't that the christian thing to do is to love one another as you would yourself as the lord god jesus christ and so many people didn't they claimed their faith as a barrier to wearing a mask they equated wearing a mask with bondage, with slavery, even though it's provenly saving lives. And I cannot believe people would be so offended by being asked to be uncomfortable that they would rather pick a comfortable lie. And they didn't want to get the vaccine. And yeah, you know, the vaccine didn't turn out as well as we'd hoped, but... You know, in the beginning, they thought this was a silver bullet sort of thing. And it is if your goal is to keep the hospitals from choking on the dead, which is cool. I saw a lot of people claiming to be Christians who refused to get the vaccine, who didn't want to be bothered with other people's problems. And that made me take a step back and say, oh, I love God. And I love the Lord Jesus Christ with all my heart. I'm not so sure on the fan club. I'm really not. (laughs) Um, It made me question a lot of other things. Like, why is homosexuality a sin? You know, what's going on? I could see why abortion would be a sin because we ended in human life. However, if you're pro-life and your goal is to save lives and the barrier for people to not get an abortion or their incentive to get an abortion is because there's no social safety net, because there's nothing to help them, then I think the Christian thing to do would be to help them as you would yourself, as you would your family. Don't resent them for needing help. There's this weird strain of resentment that runs through our politics, our religion, through half the country at the moment. 
And so much of it was dressed up in some sort of performative Christianity. And I don't feel like I fit, I fit there anymore. It's like the pandemic's seems to be winding down and everyone just wants to pretend like nothing happened I can't do that you know so I'm looking for other places I'm looking at other I don't know what I'm looking for anymore but I'm questioning things you know and I don't feel very comfortable. I'm very hesitant to go to a church because I won't know how people acted during the pandemic, right? I won't know if the person that's professing with the mouth that Lord, that, you know, <laughs> that they love the Lord and God is love and all that, refused to wear a mask, refused to get vaccinated refuse to think about anyone else but themselves. And why aren't Christians socialists? Right? Like, why not? Why wouldn't they be? You know, if you look at socialism through, there's a strong social safety net that helps people, why wouldn't they be socialist? You know, I just, it just makes sense in my head if, if to love and serve God is to love and serve each other, then the government being the representative of the nation, a, a conglomerate will of its people, loving and serving each other, its people, that would be the will of God executed, wouldn't it? You don't resent people for needing help. You don't punish people for needing help because I've been in spots where I needed help and I've, I came from families that relied on public assistance, right? And I think a lot of this sort of resentment toward people needing help comes from people that need help themselves and resent the fact that they need it, right? They're projecting onto it. They want to pretend like they're, they don't. I've had people, as I'm driving them to a food bank, tell me how other groups of people, all they want is a handout. <laughs> While we were going to a food bank to get free food from a church, <laughs> And, and the level of cognitive dissonance is outstanding. <laughs> and, and so much of that has seemed to, in fact, the conservative Christian right in this country. And, and you know, if there is a church that... People were pro-life, but also were kind of socialist about it and wanted to tell people that, hey man, if you have that baby, we'll take it from there. Don't worry about it. They lead with compassion. And not... They lead with compassion 
and love and not resentment and bitterness and anger and hatred. And not resentment and bitterness and anger and hatred. Compassion is the will of the Lord God Jesus Christ. And the pandemic showed me that a lot of the people that claim to believe that, to uphold it, are what Thomas Paine would refer to as sunshine patriots. And during the pandemic, the ones that, the ones that at least seem to not, at least seem to try to do what's best for each other, they were not the devout evangelical Christian types. Didn't seem to be. And, and I don't know, maybe that's just my own narrow experience. Maybe that's just, maybe I just didn't see it. Maybe it was there and I just saw the bad parts. Maybe I just experienced the bad parts. I don't know. That's possible. Maybe I'm generalizing. I just, I don't feel comfortable in a church right now. And I have a hard time trusting anybody when they say that they <laughs> I saw how we all acted during the pandemic. And I have a hard time forgetting. Everybody, this is Derwin, and this is an experimental podcast to see how it sounds when I record from within inside my car. And you guys are gonna go with me on a trip to the dentist office. Super fun. I have had a lot of experience with the dentist over the last couple years. My whole life, really. I've always had terrible teeth. But, it'll just be a simple cleaning today. And today, I want to talk about over-optimizing your life. Because I think it's a trap that's easy to fall into. Especially for myself. And that is because uh, I'm so afraid that I won't get the chance to do all the things I want to do. You know, I'm terrified that I'll run out of time. So I optimize my life. I optimize my life as much as I can. And not everybody 
uh, has that same general outlook or fear in their life. You know, which makes sense. It is probably a healthy reaction to things, if you really think about it. Um, Because, like, I don't know, like, I made this, there was this documentary that we put together recently, and it was of archival footage I shot from my rack, and I never really got around to finishing it the way I wanted to. I always found other things to do or whatever, and then, you know, in January of 2022, I wake up and I'm nearly choking to death. I... Due to sleep apnea. And then I say, oh, maybe I should finish this thing. Maybe I should do the thing I've been meaning to do. And and the pandemic was like that for me too. I so much of the pandemic was me thinking I had to get everything done right now as fast as humanly possible, as quick as I can. And that's fine. Right? That's not a bad thing necessarily, but also I have to remind myself that not everyone operates on that wavelength. You know, some people just need downtime, I guess, and they're not constantly running 500 miles an hour like I am. Like, I wish I wasn't. Um, because I don't know, like everything really kind of worked out for me in my life and, and I always felt like a part of it was because I just worked my ass off and kept running the whole time, you know, I never gave my safe, my, I know what I want and then I go after it, and I have to perpetually be in motion, because, like, if I, if I stop for five seconds, if I feel things start to stagnate, I get terrified, I get anxious, I think, oh, my God, we're all going to fail, you know, that's not true, you could take a break, but, <laughs> you know, for example, I'm recording this podcast content as I'm driving, to uh, the dentist's office the weekend or the, 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 the day of us going to um, you know a wedding right like the next pandemic post pandemic perspective you get from me will probably be at the Airbnb right after the rehearsal dinner maybe I'm not sure one of my wife's cousins is getting married and so I thought oh maybe I can like record podcast stuff while I'm driving Right? Like, kind of like you're talking to somebody on the phone. You know, you, you, you just you hit the record button and then it plays or then it records and then you're just kind of talking into the ether whilst driving. Right? It's like talking to somebody on Bluetooth. You know, except you're just talking to yourself, which I was going to do anyway. I talk to myself when I drive all the fucking time. It just made sense to, I don't know, get episode content out of it, maybe. <laughs> Or just see how well it sounded. Um, 
But yeah. I think I'm just fucking terrified of being a failure. And so then I just run 500 miles an hour and and do everything I want to do and try to incorporate everything I do into a thing I want to do. Which admittedly probably hampers relationships, hampers friendships and stuff. Um, Because sometimes I will go off the grid and then just like work on shit for a few weeks or a few months and and not really be that social of a person and then whine about how lonely I am because consistency is my bag. Babe. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'm learning to accept, to understand is that not everybody operates on that wavelength of I have to run 100,000 miles an hour and do everything I want to do because death is around every corner. <laughs> That's fucking bleak. But, you know. Um, because sometimes people just want to relax. And, and they don't have to optimize every single moment of their lives. You know. And me optimizing every single moment of my life isn't bad. It's what made me the success that I am. You know, and people not wanting to do that. People wanting to maybe just do one thing. Because my, my favorite thing in the world is to figure out how to accomplish three things at once successfully and competently. Right? Sometimes I can do it. Sometimes I can, you know, like there's a mandatory training I'm listening to while I'm doing push-ups you know, or, or, or it's playing mute while I'm doing push-ups, while I'm listening to an audio podcast. Like, sometimes you can do three things at once, and it's fucking, it's my favorite thing to do in the world, but that's not everybody. I can't be everybody. And, because I don't think, I mean, if we all operated on that wavelength, we'd all be exhausted. Anyway, that was my wife. So, I'm really lucky to have her. I I don't think I would have done well without her, like, at all. Um, I know I wouldn't have. I... She's the center of gravity in my whole universe. She's the thing that keeps me going. She's my North Star. I've got this real self-destructive streak in me. And... She gives me a reason not to. Right? She gives me a focus to build... And to focus on the building and not 
and not let things spiral into self-destruction. Because that's easy. Self-destruction's easy. Like, it's, oh my god. Like, that's practically the default setting for humanity, right? Like, is failure, self-destruction, regret, you know. Success, that's nearly impossible. Failure, oh my god, that happens every single day uh, humans exist. And I always figured, you know, never, don't worry about success that almost never happens. Worry about failure. That happens all the time, constantly. Anyway, I'm here at the dentist's office. Hey everybody, this is Derwin, and today's post-pandemic perspective is coming to you from vacation. I'm at this Airbnb in a converted carriage house that my wife found. She always finds the coolest places for us to stay. And we're in Cincinnati and we're here at a wedding. And it's eight o'clock in the morning. I'm listening to the birds outside. There's a metal staircase up to the second floor. And today I wanted to talk about masculinity, of all things. It's something that's been on my mind for a while. And let's first define what it isn't. It's not inherently evil. However, it has a place. You know, it has a very specific place, I think. And there's a subset of the country that distrusts it, or I think is distrustful of authority in general, right? And... They see masculinity as a form of authority. And they only know it in its sort of performative sense where, you know, it's the big tough macho guy stereotype, right? Like like a macho bully, right? Like he has a lot of stereotypical masculine traits of like aggression, dominance, uh, leader of the hierarchy. And those are all amped up to 11. And, <clears throat> and that's a cartoon character. Um, but also, that's a very real person, too. So, because there's a lot of people who only 
There's people that are suspicious of masculinity that only know of it through the cartoon character because they've interacted with people that were taught a form of masculinity that turns them into cartoon characters that think, oh, you know, I'm the man, so I'm in charge, and I say what goes, and all that nonsense. Because going back, I have this theory. I don't know if it's true, but it's a kind of idea that I have in my head where, you know, you go back before the age of mass communication and society was held together with a series of stories, right? And those stories had to be simple so they could apply on a mass population. A simple story travels the fastest. And stories like well-defined gender roles, right? That's a story. And that was so well-defined because it needed to be for society to function, for people to understand each other. And, and you know, this isn't uh, morality. You know, I'm not making a moral judgment on the benefits of such a simple story dictating our lives back then. I just kind of think that's how it shook out. And now we're in an age where news travels pretty fast. And things are a lot more flexible than they once were. So people are kind of exploring new variations on the old stories, which is great. You know, um, I know a lot of men that their wives make more than them, you know. And that's great, too. You know, someone's making more money. That's fine. You know, uh, I know for large parts of my relationship, my wife made more than me. So I looked at that through the lens of my own masculinity, right? Like, how do I define masculinity? And wise man said that it's you lead your family through serving them. Right. There's a lot of service in that leadership role because you figure out how best you're useful to your family and then you practice your masculinity that way. It's almost a discipline of thought, you know, than like a performative identity where you're the big man on campus. You know, I have been trained by the government how to clean and maintain things. So I'm, and I also work from home. My wife's a school teacher. School teachers work crazy, stupid, long hours. How stupid would it be for me to expect her to work crazy, stupid, long hours at school teaching children during the pandemic and then come home and then do all the cleaning and then cook? That's the, and make more money than me? That's the dumbest thing I ever heard. Um, but so you adapt it, right? Like masculinity should be adaptable. You should never be rigid with it. And 
So I adapted mine. I thought, oh, well, I don't have the earning potential she does. So what I can do is I can make it to where she doesn't really have to worry about the house too much. As much as I can, right? I'm not perfect, and, you know, I could do better, but I could do that. You know, I can serve my family that way. I can make the house clean. I can keep a running mental inventory of our supplies we have there. I can know what needs to be done before, and then do it before she even notices. You know, because if her role is, oh, I go out into the world and make more money, and then mine is, oh, I stay home and make less money working from home with a much more flexible job than as a man your purpose is to serve and lead your family as best you can and part of that serving I think goes into wherever you're the most useful go be useful and in a lot of ways you know that's that's a big chunk of where I practice my masculinity. I think it's just by cleaning the house. You know, <laughs> you know they taught us how to clean an army barracks and how to maintain an army barracks, and a lot of those skills kind of translate. <laughs> but and with leading too, it's not effective leadership is not top down you know, sort of aggressive dominance bullying or whatever. It's, you know, if you're the leader, then it's up to you to figure out what the problem is. Find three solutions. Pick what you think is the best solution, but also present the other two solutions to her just in case she has different ideas. You know. And then say, hey, this is what I think is the best solution and this is why. You know, and leadership is a lot of work. Leadership is is making is keeping the ball rolling, right? A big chunk of being a husband I've found in three years is just making sure the ball rolls. She tells you which way it goes. You know, <laughs> that's fine. You know, but. You know, you guys figure out together which way the ball, ro- which direction the ball goes. But sometimes the ball stops; it gets stuck. And your job, just give it a slight push, and then keep it rolling again. You know, and then don't get in front of it. <laughs> it's easy to do that too. It's easy to get in your own head, to get in front of something, to, or you know, you're feeling whiny <laughs> so you get from the ball and you know but yeah masculinity has a place inside the home and outside the home and <clears throat> for inside the home it's a lot of that it's outside the home you know, you're kind of the representative of the family, right? And again, you know, you're not making all the choices and 
or but you through the expression of your competence have been entrusted with the ability to make a decision knowing that you've done your due diligence to make sure you know what she wants right like like if you're need to do something and then you can't contact her but you know what she's going to want probably and so you can kind of make that call um or you know you're fixing a thing in the house you know what she's going to want probably you talked to her about it already you've discussed the issue before the repairman came out so you kind of make a call right that's leadership that's masculinity it's it's being the person that knows what the plan is and you're trusted to execute it. So she doesn't have to. It's, you know, and I noticed something a little bit about this in the Middle Eastern cultures, right? In my brief time there, a long time ago. And I was always a little bit fascinated by them. Because they have such clearly defined gender roles. They're clearly defined, right? You would talk to a 15-year-old boy before you talk to his mom. It's the reverse here, of course. but And that's because I think since men have an automatic size differential with women, right? Typically, typically a guy is bigger than a girl. A man is bigger than a woman. And he's probably going to be stronger. Typically, it's not all the time, but it's most of the times. And so, there's always going to be that sort of intimidation factor there, right? Because I know this, notice this talking to women, just being a man out in the world. You know, sometimes women are a little afraid of men. And you can kind of tell, right, when they're being polite, when they're trying not to make it noticeable, but you can. And... But if they have a man with them, I'll always talk to the man, assuming that whatever the man says, he's ran by her first, or, you know. And, and, and I've noticed that technicians and plumbers and stuff, when they come into the house, do the same. Because so that way, you know, no one accidentally intimidates the woman of the house, right? That's what the man's there for, is to be the representative to other men to people outside the home, you know, it kind of deals with problems so she doesn't have to, that sort of thing. But yeah, it's kind of my 8 a.m. Saturday morning thoughts on masculinity. <laughs> mm. <sighs> it's got a purpose in the world. I think When people talk about toxic masculinity, they're just talking about bullies. That's all. They're saying sometimes people take the wrong lessons from masculinity and they turn to bullies. You know, a lot of it's buzzwords that you're kind of trained to tense up against. You hear toxic masculinity, you tense up against it. You know, you stop listening. If you hear toxic masculinity, replace the phrase with the word bully means the same thing. 
Um, I think a lot of people that are the most against the idea of masculinity are the ones who've only had to deal with bullies. And I don't think it's a heteronormative thing either, you know. I don't know the... I haven't really thought about, like, the specifics of it with, like, LGBT couples and stuff. I haven't really explored that idea very much, if it exists there. Uh, it might be a thing where a lot of the traits cross over, they just call it by different names, right? It's a bit of a different culture than mine. But I'd be fascinated to learn more about masculinity through, like, a queer perspective. Uh, and how much of it how much of what I would consider masculinity, they'd probably agree with. They would just call it something different. Um, I think a lot of things, a lot, a lot people probably agree on most things. They just call it by different names, and our culture is pretty fractured these days. So we're kind of trained to think that if somebody call, has a different phrase for something, then they're different. It's very tribal. And... The importance of the words can't be understated because if people use the wrong words to describe a thing, then that signals that they're not in another person's tribe and that other person gets really like suspicious. It's very, it's very silly. We're very, very, very similar. Most people are only a few shades different from each other. This is Derwin, and this is an early morning walk that I'm on. We got back from the wedding last weekend, and it was such a beautiful experience. We got to be close to family. We all sat in this big tent at the reception, and there were lights strung out everywhere, and music was playing, and and there were just drinks and laughter and love and family. It was wonderful. And at the end of the party, I could see the parents of the groom who hosted the reception at their home. Everybody was leaving. Everything was winding down. And they didn't have to host anymore. They could just enjoy themselves, enjoy the party, enjoy the ch each other. And... I saw them dancing, and they'd been together for, gosh, 20 years, probably more, probably closer to 25. It got me thinking about the different stages of life, how lucky we all are to get to experience the different ones. And yes, it'd be great to be 25 forever physically, but who wants to experience 25 forever? <laughs> that nice couple I saw dancing... They were at the tail end of one stage of life, of raising kids, of getting them out of the house, and married off and started their own families, and into the next one, where they get to enjoy grandparenthood soon, hopefully, right? There's no buns in the oven yet that I know of, but I'm sure there will be in a couple years, and... I'm feeling a similar way about my hair, to be honest, because it is 
it is retreating and thinning with the quickness. But that's the stage of life. You know, I know what it's like to have a full head of hair. But I don't know what it's like to go bald a bit at a time. And <laughs> I'm kind of looking at this like, oh, I get to kind of experience that. And what's that like? And not everybody gets to experience that. And not everybody gets to experience getting married. And not everybody gets to experience having children. And then seeing those children marry. And just the happiness and joy that having a partner to complete a stage of life with. Because I could see it in their eyes. I could see how the love they had and, and the joy that the completion of the stage brought them. Of, hey, we did it. We did it together and it's off to the next one. I love weddings. I don't have to fight anymore, I guess. Or at least not the old fights I'd been fighting. And I can feel the chapter of my life closing, the previous chapter. I think the second chapter, maybe. I got me a nice job. I got a wife. I got a house. I get to do all these creative things and projects that fill my soul with such joy. It all worked out. And I think I'm at that part where I ride off into the sunset. Maybe. The sunset's always moving from you. But I thought about going back to school recently. I had a family member in the hospital recently. And it brought me back to my medic days of working at a hospital and remembering how it felt when you took care of somebody and they made it and everything was okay. And how good that felt and how much I missed it. And lately I've been looking for whatever my next step may be because the pandemic was so much like a combat deployment and I was just so scared and angry and anxious all the time. And lately, the vaccines are working enough, you know, it's keeping most of the people out of the hospitals. And since we're there, it feels like that moment when you come home off a of deployment and life just kind of shifts and moves, right? So much of the deployment was, or so, the deployment, so much of the pandemic was spent waiting, waiting to go back to the office waiting for things to get back to normal. Things that will never happen. 2019 never happens again, right? It can. <laughs> so many things have changed. And I thought I had to make some dramatic shift because it was like, oh, I've been waiting for things to be over. I guess things are over now. So it's time to go do something. And I looked into nursing, I, I thought, you know, if I could do like a class a semester over five years or something, maybe, but they want you to be 
basically I'd be unemployed for 13 months. And I've got really good health insurance. So, <laughs> um, that's not an option. And then I thought about grad school for creative writing. And like so many things, I was trying to find the next path out, right? I was trying to find the way out, I guess. And I was retreading old paths to see if those felt right, I guess. You know, like like Madison. Like, I've done that before. I've done versions of that, being a nurse before. It's not at the nursing level, but I understand enough of what that job would be like to know I'd like it. But I don't think that's in the cards for me anymore. And, you know, grad school sure sounds like fun, right? I think that's not in the cards for me either. I think I'm trying to find a new path by retracing my steps a little bit. And I realized, no, you can't go backwards like that. You can't go back to what was familiar. And you know what really scares the hell out of me? Is this third stage of life as an adult in my prime. You know, realizing that's where I am. And I've gone to war, I've been in medicine, I've finished college. All of those things would be going backwards. You know, there's only space to move forward. 